Well, I am Tristan Watkins. I'm the program manager for the Cannabis Business Office, and I am proud to work in cannabis because it's an innovative and novel industry that has yet to be fully established. everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. I'm your host, Carson Humiston, the founder of Angst, and I'm very excited for this guest that we have today. Actually, Tristan and I met each other face-to-face just before the holidays. Tristan Watkins is the program manager at the Cannabis Business Office here in Colorado, started on the brand side of the industry, ultimately worked his way into a government role, which is a role that we've never talked about here on the show. So this is going to be a really exciting episode. Tristan, welcome to our podcast. How are you today? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for inviting me. How are you? I am good. I, the, it's one, it was one degrees when I walked out of my house this morning. So I, hopefully that your heat works well in your house because it is absolutely freezing right now in our office. I don't think our heat is working very well here. Oh yeah, I, I I fortunately have not had to open my doors or do anything outside. I, growing up in Florida, this weather just keeps you inside and bottled up. So, I know I was a bunch of people came in today, and I was like, did we all make the mistake of coming here? I feel like our office building just assumed nobody would come, so they didn't turn the heat on. <laughs> uh, well, well, anyway, listen, I'm so excited to have you here today. It would be helpful to our audience if you could walk us through your background and how you ultimately decided to go into cannabis and we can spend a little bit of time on uh, your first job in cannabis before we get into uh, what you're up to today. Sure, sure. Yeah. The the, the path to here is definitely a little bit winding when it comes to me, but I'll start back, uh, you know, I I don't know, 10-ish years ago, we'll say, you know, maybe maybe 11 or 12. Uh, I actually was in grad school studying neuroscience I happen to be studying actual, so like drug abuse, drug addiction, things like that, in particular, the, the effects of, of sort of long-term cannabis use and long-term MDMA use. Although graduate school was really great and the the path towards like professorship was really interesting, right around that time, Colorado and uh, you know Oregon had just passed their recreational cannabis laws. And it just kept pulling me, right? So I, I was following the news, seeing uh, seeing businesses pop up, basically learning anything that I could, uh, and ultimately made the decision about a year before defending my dissertation that I wasn't going to stay in academia. I, I wanted to go and do a whole nother brand new path. So just like grad school, you have to study someone that no one studied, and you kind of create a whole new path for yourself. I saw the cannabis industry as a similar opportunity with that same level of engagement and innovation, just in, in a different area. And and not through that professorship route. So what was really interesting to me, though, is during my research while I was still in grad school, I was researching the plant itself and all of these different compounds that exist in the plant, right? So, and notably, all of these different effects that the plant seems to have. So you'd read stories about how one person says, oh, cannabis does X, Y, Z. And the next person says, oh, well, cannabis actually does Z, Y, X for me. And it kind of brought all these questions of, all right, what, what is it about cannabis? It's not that THC is some special molecule that sort of breaks all the guidelines of, of other phar- pharmaceuticals. So there must be something more. And that's what led me to, to really researching, you know, all the different types of cannabinoids beyond THC, the different terpenes, flavanols, and the different composition of all of these and how sort of tailoring those can actually lead to unique and, and specific effects. Um, 
so yeah, that that sort of realization is what ultimately led me to move out to Colorado. Didn't even have a position yet. I just knew I, I needed to get out here and start knocking on doors and meeting people. And that led me to Lucid Mood. This was a company that had it was very much in its idea phase when I, when I when I first uh, joined. And, and they were they were they based in were they based and founded in Colorado? That's why you decided to come to Colorado. Um, or no, right? You said you didn't yeah. even have you hadn't even met them, right? I okay, didn't so even, yeah. So and you know, I, I was looking at a couple different states: Colorado, uh, California, and, and Oregon. Right, we're we're basically basically the three. Um, Colorado is. And best what year water. was this? I should know all this off the top of my head. So what are we for? Maybe 2015 or so. Yeah. 2015. It's so right. funny because that was, that was right at our, our paths seem pretty similar because I graduated from college in 2015. Also, you know, had, had this idea for the business in the States that I was deciding between at that time were Colorado, Washington, Oregon, or Alaska, because those were the four States with adult use at that time. If you remember 2015, California, hadn't even passed yet. And yeah, I mean, Alaska would be kind of cool, but I feel like everybody was like going to Colorado if they wanted to get in, in 2015 anyway. Absolutely. And, and honestly, it, it, you know, looking back at, at the industries, I'm, I'm obviously glad that I didn't make my way out to California because it took a while to go adult use and the rollout wasn't exactly as smooth as it could have been um, as, as you look back. <laughs> it's with, still, with that 2020 it still has its own unchallenged. <laughs> right. Okay. So you, sure. move, so you move out uh, to Colorado you assumed the weather was going to be good. You didn't think there was going to be one degree days like today, but it's fine. So you move out to Colorado in 2015, and, and then what? And then what happened? Yeah. So uh, you know, the, the, basically, my next steps are counter to like everything that a career guidance counselor would tell you, right? So I spent like months writing out all these super formal le- cover letters and doing all the official networking that you're supposed to do, um, and really got nowhere. And you know, I was still kind of pursuing that, but I had almost given up on the cannabis industry. It was actually looking at other things like think tanks and consulting and things like that. And I found the original founder of Lucid Mood on LinkedIn, who was doing something completely separate. Um, but I noticed that they were doing this Lucid Mood idea. Um, and in, incidentally, they had that same idea of, hey, this can the canvas plant is super diverse. If we really just use the the compounds, the, the, the active ingredients, um, that are going to more that will more likely lead to the effects that people want. We could build a better product. So that was the idea that was kind of sitting there. Um, so instead of, you know, I told you I'd, I'd kind of given up on the cannabis route. So I didn't send the formal letter. I didn't do all of that. I just found a little about us thing and I typed in the most flippant uh, sort of initial communication possible. I think it was something along the lines of, Hey, I love what you're doing. I'm a neuroscientist. If you need someone to help you build, create better products, that was it. That's what got, that's what got me in. Like the next day we're having a phone call two days later, we're, we're meeting at some random coffee, getting coffee. And then by Monday, I'm there with the other two primary founders and we're, we're talking strategy on how to really create an interesting and, and novel product. I'll skip a bunch. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so at that point, it was only so there was three three founders and you. Were you the first person that they brought into the mix? Yeah, I'm the. I was the first person that wouldn't technically be sort of the the founder, as in they had the you know two people had a com- had a conversation at Frozen Dead Guys at, out in Netherlands, and um, so they were sort of like the original idea makers, and then I jumped in super super early and sort of got like that unofficial fo- founder 
title it's, just because. It's so funny. We had another uh, person on our show, Claire Maloney from LeafLink. She was higher number one at LeafLink. And I feel like there could be an entire episode just all about the employee number ones. Like I've, I talk about Jordan, our first hire all the time. And it's like the person that comes in right behind the founder. I mean, what an elite group of people, especially in this industry to go through and see everything literally that happens on day one. It's like, there's no job description for an employee. Number one, it's get in and do every Everything. single thing. What was it like? Yeah. Like what was it like on that? Those first couple days um, being employee number one at a brand new brand in Colorado in 2015. You know, it, it was mind boggling, mind bogglingly sort of open, if that makes sense. Right. So academia is like this railroad you do, you have to do everything and everything needs a ladder to itself. And if you deviate at all, everyone kind of freaks out. They're like, well, why would you do this? And then I get here and it's like, okay, well, I'm really good at the science. So I'm going to dive in and start making products. We're like, well, you know, we also need to figure out marketing and branding and sales and operations and basically everything that a startup needs. So, you know, I, I had to kind of hang up the idea of like one really fancy hat that I knew everything about, put that away. And then, you know, it's sort of this grab bag of hats that I had to throw on all the time. So it was actually one of those amazing experiences. And, and I think anyone that's in the hiring process, if you're found, find like that first hire, you know they're going to be well-rounded and diverse because they were thrown in to do a, a number of different things. I mean, I helped run patent portfolios, do trademarks, um, do a lot of, do significant amount of marketing and branding. And all of this is coming from someone who, you know, months earlier was all like, you know, six feet deep into, that's not the right phrase, very, very deep into sort of just research, just, just science. So. And I also always think that for an employee, number one, what a better way to get to basically launch a business. Like if you had your own aspirations to go and be an entrepreneur and start a business, I feel like being an employee, number one is like the ultimate way to learn it, right? You could go to school and you could read about it, or you could be employee number one and you could live it all day, every day and put in the work and learn all the lessons. Like what an epic learning experience. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree because you, you're not being so much more operationally driven when you're employee number one, because, you know, then the CEO gets to go back out and just do a lot of fundraising and things like that. So I don't have a lot of experience on the fundraising side and just a massive partnership building. But as far as the day in and day out, you see how things fall apart. You see how you make good SOPs and need to implement them. And then, of course, someone like deviates immediately. Um, but, you know, all that that process generation was just is, has been so key moving forward. And honestly, anyone can go out and raise money. It's not that hard. It's so much harder to do what you just described, to operationalize and build a scalable system that um, works and grows. Raising money is sales, right? Building a business and building operations and hiring people and having systems in place that work and scale and you can put more people in um, and they grow and understanding the business and like getting something from zero to one is such a more, it's so much more valuable than being able to raise money. So that's awesome for you. So, okay. So, so, you, so I get excited talking about employee number ones. I actually didn't realize that um, about you. So it's so, super cool to learn. So you're there as employee number one. How did the launch go? Like when you guys did your official launch in Colorado, how, how did the launch go and kind of what was the go-to-market strategy? So it's actually a bit of a funny story. So before I got there, they had kind of done a, a, a launch zero, if you will. Um, and they put an 
I don't know if you will actually remember this, but the whole idea was, hey, we can take a cannabinoid ratio and then put different terpenes on top of that and create these different products. In order to do that from like, uh, you know, it, it, it's a little bit harder to do a lot of that manual testing uh, and being as nimble with kind of trying out all these different combinations in an actual pen uh, or even just um, concentrate. So what they originally had done was put the THC on a, on a hemp puck. And then you could take that hemp puck and put whatever terpene combination over it that you want. And you throw that whole thing into like a PAX or any sort of uh, vaporizer, any type of portable vaporizer. And that's how we were doing, that's how they were doing their original testing. And this is an interesting lesson learned because the people that they tested with that, even though the effects were nice, they unsurprisingly hated the the actual product itself, like the process was just so complicated. It, it you know, it, you had to like take this and the drop, do a little dropper and do all and have, and have all these tools. It, it was absurd. And we found that even for a year after doing that initial test, the first people that we tested with were like, oh no, we don't want your stupid, complicated, convoluted product. And like, when it, we're like, no, 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 that was just a test. Like we have moved on from there, but it really showed how law, how lasting that sort of first impression can be on that sales front. But, you know, we switched into an all-in-one disposable vaporizer. Um, I'm trying to think. We Our first dispensaries were in Boulder because we were local to Boulder and had some connections there. Um, and, you know, I'd say the launch was slow. There's no better way to put it. I mean, it was. it's still a somewhat confusing product to this day. I mean, it's what it suffers from that. You kind of need to explain why you would try this one over another one. And as we know, that explanation process is challenging at the at the counter itself. So it was slow. Well, now that we're launching our now that we're launching our training product, Lucid Mood will have to be one of our customers so we can help bud tenders get trained on why choose this product. So that makes me excited to hear in terms of if you're saying still to this day, it's a little bit confusing because maybe we could help them. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll have to put you, put you all in contact actually. You have to put me in touch. Yeah. I can't help myself but selling. So, so, so how many years did you end up staying? Five or so. Yeah. About five. So yeah, from then until COVID basically we were, we were running, we had, we had gone through, you know, uh, friends and family and then a series, a seed series, and then a series a, um, and then ultimately during COVID right before COVID market itself was starting to collapse, especially the capital markets associated with cannabis was, they were significantly crashing. 2019. Yeah. It, yeah. Like the first can of session. Yeah, exactly. And you had the, the bigger players like Medmen like collapsing under their own weight, which just terrified the sm- a lot of smaller investors and VCs. So ultimately, you know, we were, you know, we were, we were a little cash restricted and then COVID hit and we kind of went in hibernation mode and play and worked out the, the, the most, uh, the, the best next step was, was an, which was an exit strategy. So we went to hibernation mode, let things kind of run on autopilot, made some great strategic partnerships for, uh, contract manufacturing to keep the product flowing and and still being distributed, even though everyone was essentially furloughed. Um, and then on the back end, we were just working to sell the company off. And we did so about six to nine months after we kind of went into hibernation mode. And fortunately, it got taken over by a, a great group of people who are really passionate about it, really, really brand dri- driven as well. And I believe they're they're doing an excellent job right now with it. Which is pretty, so it's pretty amazing. I mean, you join the company, you're employee number one, you went through the launch, you went through the seed round, you went through the series A, you went through a market downturn, and then you went through the exit of the business. I mean, you basically went through a huge life cycle of the company. So, I mean, what an incredible 
employee number one experience. Like you, oh, yeah. you really hit all the, all the, all the marks there. Oh uh, yeah. I'll take it. It was like a full series. <laughs> um, it was a full, it was a full, <laughs> full Netflix series. Exactly. I mean, it's it, again, yeah, it's, it's crazy that we got through the exit too. Right. I mean, most companies just don't even have that opportunity at all. So I, I, I feel like I got, I mean, maybe I want to, we should give more credit to everyone involved than luck, but still, it was a very lucky experience to, to really re- start from, from nothing to a successful exit. So. And so now it's so crazy to me because you go from this fast paced, doing everything to then going into the government. Like, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah. And so before even diving into how this happened, I always joke. So when I made that transition, my, my wife who works in the government, had to explain to me, she gave me this metaphor. She's like, all right, you just came from startup, which is like riding on a jet ski. You're now on the barge of government. Like you cannot (laughs) single-handedly change its trajectory or speed. It's just not going to happen. And I, it took me about six months to finally accept that. So it it ultimately happened. So, you know, 2020, 2021, a a lot happened in our society in general. Uh, I, I got really introspective and, and kind of looked around what was going on around me and where I wanted to get that, de- where I wanted to dedicate a significant portion of my life. And ultimately where I landed on was, I, you know, I wanted to do some type of give back, right? By some serendipitous chance, the cannabis business office, the bill for it, which was, which was SB 21111, I think it was like marijuana entrepreneurship program for social equity. I forget exactly what it what it's called. I should know the full title. Either way, that had passed and I just found a random job title or job search uh, for the Office of Economic Development, seeing if somebody wanted to come in and do social equity work for the cannabis space. And it honestly couldn't have been a better match. It was exactly what I was looking at or looking for. So I, I you know, I, I, I applied, you know, I did all the right things again, full cover letter. It wasn't just a flippant little G chat to someone or anything like that. Yeah. I, I, I interviewed and basically told this whole past story. You know, I, I started from, you know, day, day one, day zero, got to a full exit. I understand what a lot of the, the new, what a lot of cannabis entrepreneurs are dealing with. And I think I could provide sort of that, that unique perspective and yet that unique background that someone from a more traditional business background might not be able to apply or might not be as applicable. And I think entrepreneurs working with you, I mean, even in our conversations, it's refreshing to meet with someone that is in the government that understands how businesses and startups work. So I have to imagine a lot of the folks that you work with are like, oh my gosh, this is a breath of fresh air in the government. Yes, um, definitely. I, I, yes. When, in my first six months, I, I brought in a bunch of novel ideas. I'm not saying all of them were taken up, but it just, I had no government background at all. So I'd be like, well, what should we try this? And everyone's like, well, that's lunacy to want to do. We don't do that in the government, but then we kind of went in that direction and and it and it seems to be going well. I don't have people constantly yelling at me and I have generally seem to be having a have a decent track record of success over the last year and a half or so. Um but yeah so I mean not only understanding businesses but also just viewing things from a non sort of established government mindset is also helpful as well. So you know there sometimes there are some processes that were that existed that people would just take up as they brought in. They're like, oh, well, we do this. We've done this, so we now do this. And I sp- kind of wanted to start as fresh as possible, understanding that you know cannabis entrepreneurs are already dealing with a lot just because it's a regulated business. But then recognizing that you know when we're talking about social equity, 
if there's a need for social equity at the government level, that is a strong indication that the prior processes used to implement programs weren't working entirely effectively, at least for the groups that we are targeting. So we had to switch things up and had to take a different approach. And that's ultimately, I think, what I got to do just from a lack of government experience, right? So, so what is the mandate really? Like what, what are you, I think a lot of folks listening really may not office what the can may not know what the cannabis business office, what the goal of the office is. So, so can you kind of talk to people about that and like what you're working on solving every day? Yeah. So, um, so from a, from just a bill perspective or statute perspective, it's actually a shockingly broad mandate. It was ultimately, it was, here's $4 million from the marijuana tax cash fund. And you were to take these dollars to create a grant program, a loan program, and technical assistance. And that about covers the mandate, which was phenomenal to work with because it allowed us to, again, be creative and 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 work and, and put out what was really necessary at that time um, instead of sort of being having this top-down direction from a group of legislators that may or may not have had direct experience in the cannabis space, right? Um, so ultimately, you know, what what we really first started doing was first thing we did was a massive data collection process of what's the demand, where are people and what helpful and what help do they actually need right now? So we did that before we started implementing any programming so that we made sure that what we put out to the public was actually helpful. And I'm curious in that in that from the massive data collection journey where you said folks in the cannabis industry, what do you need? I'm so curious, like what the top things were. Yeah, so it it was definitely interesting, especially when you the when you consider this as like a subpopulation of potential entrepreneurs, right? There's there's a there's criteria that that qualifies you for social equity, but ultimately, what it seemed to happen, what it seems like what happened is ultimately there was a lot of excitement generated from the announcement of this office and the money that would come with it. So what we quickly found were there are a lot of people that a majority of of applicants or participants of this survey didn't really have any any business experience they their entrepreneur experience was maybe in less sort of official businesses especially when you're comparing it to the regulatory or regulated business that cannabis is um, and they may or may not have had any real experience in cannabis in the cannabis industry itself. So really a lot of people were excited at this really cool, great opportunity and an industry that they knew was growing rapidly. So we, and there were a lot of people, like in the first month, we had all about 150 people respond to our to our survey and reach out to us. So what we found was a lot of excitement with not a whole lot of background. So that's that's really, that's really how we tailored our first technical. Assistance. They're like kind of curious. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, that's that's who we tailored our technical assistance programming for were, were, were those individuals. We made sure that it was on demand, accessible online, because a lot of these people sort of just had their own careers going. So they needed to be able to learn this new thing on the schedule that worked best for them. And then that the information that was conveyed, you know, it was very business foundations focused with like a cannabis lens to it. And that was really important to us because let's be real, as someone who's gone through the whole, gone through a cannabis cycle in the, in, in the industry, 
it's extremely challenging. It's challenging to even open your doors. So, you know, pairing that with a bunch of people who are just excited, but don't necessarily have that background. We wanted to make sure that as they went through this technical assistance program, should they decide that maybe the cannabis industry wasn't the best option for them, they still took away a great sort of foundation of business knowledge that can be applied towards a different entrepreneurial path that they might end up taking. Because at the end of the day, I mean, cannabis is challenging and it's extremely expensive to even get going. So, you know, if we can kind of spark that entrepreneurial spirit in one domain and then it transfers to another, that's still a win in my book. Totally. We're speaking of wins. What is like the ultimate measure of success? And do you have any like really cool case studies that you can share of we were able to help this person get from point A to, to, to point B? Yeah. So, you know, some of the measures of success that we look at through the, as a result of the combination of technical assistance and the, and the capital uh, opportunities that we have, the financial opportunities that we have, we want to see, you know, new businesses created, um, new employees hired or retained. So jobs, jobs created or retained. And then we want to see um, existing businesses continue to prosper and or grow. Um, those are that's kind of like the broad categorization. Categorization. I don't want to go through and like list every single variable that we measure. Um, right, 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 right. And you know, there is one one really great standout so far because I mean, again, we're 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 still pretty early in. We've only been our programming has only been out for about thirteen months so far, right? Um, but the way we structure the grant program, this is a quick background, is there's a there's two levels. There's a foundational and growth level. The foundational level is for the brand new companies and growth or for growth-oriented companies. And we structured this in a way where you could ultimately, where a business could come into the foundational path, succeed, and then graduate, and then reapply to the growth path and get that growth grant. And we actually had one business from the original round, from the pilot round that received a foundational grant, um, succeed and grow and graduate to be able to apply for their growth grant already. And that's so cool because that feeds into jobs created and employees retained, right? Because they'll be able to hire employees, retain employees. So that, that feels like it hit, I'm just looking at all the metrics that you track, it feels like it hit all three of those. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's great. Plus it's that like good story to tell too. Right. And I think like hard data is really important. Telling a really nice, compelling story can sometimes be just as important, especially when it comes to just showing the viability or the, the, the rationale for dedicating resources to this as well. Hearing like that human component. And yeah, that that's exactly what 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 we got out, out of this business. I don't want to name it only because we haven't announced our grant winners yet. Um, so you know we can do a subsequent edit later if you'd like. But yeah. That's really cool. So what's so this year we're in 2023, new year. What are you most excited about as you look forward into 2023 in, in the state of Colorado and everything that you're working on? Yeah. I mean, from a cannabis business office perspective, I'm most excited about the about a loan program that we will be announcing really soon. I can finally officially talk about it. We're out of the confidentiality stage of the uh, request for proposal. But we ultimately, we, we dedicated a million dollars towards a 10-year revolving loan program that will offer low interest loans that right now we're looking at about 6.25% interest rates, which especially with the rising um, prime rates right now, that's actually an exceptionally low rate right now. Um, and then it's revolving. So we're looking over a 10-year period uh, every you know with projections and everything going as according, going, going to plan. 
that $1 million initial investment should uh, almost triple to about $2.9 million lent out over a three-year or over the 10-year process. So not only would this be, you know, just one of the few ways that you can access a loan in the cannabis space, but it's one of the I believe that Colorado is the first state to actually sponsor and implement this type of programming. There's other states that have talked about it, and then there's other cities that have implemented it. But Colorado will be the first to do this. And ultimately, when you see a lot of the struggles that not only cannabis businesses and not only individuals that will qualify under social equity, but then the combination of social equity and then the risky cannabis business, you don't see very many opportunities for funding, especially at the loan side. So this just creates a brand new avenue for someone to be able to grow their business that might literally not exist in any capacity beyond this. So that that part is exciting. And it's huge because it's non-dilutive. And it's huge because it's non-dilutive, yes. right? If a business in Colorado right now needs to access capital to open a new location, get some of the startup costs, which they will be able to pay back over time. There's no way to do that. And so they'll go out to, I don't know, whoever's writing checks in cannabis these days, but they'll say, okay, great. I'll give you a million dollars for 50% of your business and people don't have any other options. So to be able to get a 6% loan from you, a partner that can help them grow, that's so huge. I, I've never heard of any other state's this is the first I'm hearing of any states doing this. If there's a potential cannabis business listening to this that might be interested in the loan, first off, who qualifies? And second off, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, so we are still working through sort of the, the nuts and bolts of, of actual criteria. But broadly speaking, this is for social equity and social equity licensees. The business needs to be at least 51% owned by an individual or individuals co collectively. Um, that have the social equity license. This is also called a finding a suitability um, approval letter. MED kind of calls it by both names. Uh, that's one of the big ones. You need you will need to be an existing business. So this isn't for sort of that that hopes and dream stage. Um, that being said, the 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 underwriting process, while we haven't fully defi defined it, will be very. Um, character-based forward rather than the other five C's. And that was really intentional on our part so that our lender can go in and really learn about your business and see sort of your likelihood for success. And if you don't have the collateral or the cash flow or any of those C's that would typically sort of exclude a business from from this lending process that won't necessarily serve as an immediate as an immediate exclusionary criteria, which is awesome. And then yeah, getting so yeah, obvious, and then being a cannabis business, of course. So actually having your your regulated business license and operating touching THC, and then to get in contact with me, you know, the easiest way is really just to Google Colorado Cannabis Business Office. Um, we're part of the Office of Economic Development, but that Google search, thanks to SEO and how government SEO works, it's going to pop up as the very top top hit. Um, like I said, we should be making. We are planning to make an announcement that will have some more details to it. And then we'll be really sort of writing every, writing all the details over the next few months, I'd say. And I feel like for you personally, this like even more rounds out the experience because now you're becoming an investor in a way, right? You're looking into businesses, you're hearing their pitch, and you're ultimately making the decision on if you're going to make a bet on um, putting these loans out. And if you do that, then obviously you'll be very on their team to help their businesses succeed. So I feel like you can take that operating experience that you've had 
and now use it to evaluate companies and put capital to work to help companies grow. So I feel like for you personally, it kind of rounds out uh, the full story of the experience. It, it, you're you're 100 correct there, and even even outside of the loan stuff, just just people that that reach out to the office, I will host. You know, I'll, I'll hold a 30 minute consultation sh- session with them. It's obviously free, and especially people at that really early stage, there's just those immediate questions that you need to go through when you have that experience that most people aren't aware of. So. You know, I I'm not going to sit here and say I'm some major expert that should be teaching an MBA program or anything crazy like that. But you know, if if you're just excited and about a new business and you want to learn about first steps and pitfalls and how to really challenge your 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 business plan, um, definitely feel free to reach out and we can schedule a free consultation session as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I think you would be a lot more helpful than. Um an MBA who's never actually operated. So I would definitely suggest getting in touch with Tristan. Well, Tristan, this is an awesome episode. We're running out of time here, but thank you so much for coming on, for folks listening. Definitely uh, get in touch with Tristan. He's an amazing resource in the space from being employee number one, launching a business, raising round, you know, being on the team that raised rounds, exiting a business, and now being involved literally at the government level helping amazing businesses grow. He's done it all. So Tristan, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.